This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. Hello, Bad Movie Lovers. We're back for another episode of Bad Movies We Love, and I am your host, Nick Scheist. The master of the stupid stuff! That's accurate, but if you're here, that means I'm not alone. And of course... If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. That's right. Doesn't it feel good to be part of a team? I think so. You can support the resistance over at coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com, slash badmovieswelove, spelled L-U-V. But if you want to help without the commitment, you can do that by giving the show a rating, or you can email me at badmovieswelove, still spelled L-U-V, at thescheist.com, that's T-H-E-S-H-E-I-S-T dot com. And give me some feedback. Let me know why you like the show or why you don't like the show. Either way, I'd love to hear from you. And if you have a bad movie that you love, and or maybe you want to be a guest on the show to talk about that movie, that's how you do it. But what we're doing today is we are continuing our unofficial sci-fi month, and we're doing so in a way that puts together also an accidental trilogy of Empire Pictures films, as my friend Nix from The Cinema Shit Show joins me to talk about Stuart Gordon's 1989 sci-fi action flick, Robot Jocks. I love this fucking movie, dude. It, it, you know, it, it's a shame that this movie wasn't celebrated, at least, you know, for my generation of kids in the way that we would have had I known this existed in the first place. It's fun. It's you know, a little bunch of thing. It's like surprising that it's playing in 1990 and it's goofy and cheesy. I'm making a movie about stupid robots punching each other for kids. It's Rocky Four for kids that love Transformers. You say war is outlawed, but now we're just building giant war machines. There are some astoundingly fucking awesome scenes in this film. This guy is a dick. You make my drink taste like blood. He's here again, and he's coming to talk shit. Robot Jocks is like the la- one of the last gasp of the 80s independent studios that really swung for the fences. Ooh. I'm joined I- once again by Nix and our robot lady who counts us down into the show. Or she just surprises us, pops up and says, recording has started. I was, uh, yeah, I was like, ooh, uh, that's um, that's not normal. <laughs> no countdown or nothing. We're just, we're live. So welcome back to the show, man. It's good to see you again. Oh, my God. It's been so long. I am so happy to be here to 
I don't know. Is this is, are we wrapping up our Empire trilogy? I guess. I guess officially, yeah. It's our, it's our third Empire movie, and it's spanned <laughs> over your podcast and mine. And here we are back again to wrap it up. Yeah, here we are indeed to wrap it up. And you know, do you remember like how we? settled on robot jocks as the movie we're going to talk about it wasn't planned as like hey we're going to do these pictures from empire and that's just like that's not what we planned out at all it just kind of happened and then you had mentioned robot jocks in passing and then i was like okay that might be good for the show and now like we're just here uh yeah i mean it it came up a couple times i remember at one time everybody was saying uh telling stories about their weirdest theater experiences oh yeah and robot jacks was one of mine uh because it was a very limited release so not a lot of people had any theater experiences <laughs> with this movie and um i can't remember what else but it had tied into a couple other uh conversations and you were like hey that sounds kind of like right up my alley so i was like fuck yeah robot jacks baby i'm there yeah, I'm surprised I never saw this because like giant robots uh, smashing each other in like a dystopian future is definitely up my alley. And this was 1989, so it would have been like in the home video market when I was six or seven. So it should have been like the kind of movie that I was really into when I was a kid because I was into Voltron and Transformers and all that stuff at the time. So kind of weird that I had never even heard about this until like what this year, last year? Last yeah, uh, last year, 2023. And ladies and gentlemen, we're in 2024 <laughs> now, in case we have all forgotten. Um, yes, so uh, that's probably when I first brought it up. But you're not alone. Not not many people knew about this movie. It didn't get a, a big promotional push, and it kind of went into theaters and out very quickly. And then it just showed up on, on VHS shelves. It was It was intended for kids like you and me. Mm-hmm. Or like people that grew up with that, at least, you know, kids that love Transformers. And I know uh, Stuart Gordon, who is uh, an Empire regular, he did Reanimator and Dolls. He was a huge fan of Transformers and uh, what's what's a uh, Robotech. Mm, yeah. Um, and so he was like, man, all this all this anime shit is great. Why hasn't anybody done a live action film? And that's where the idea kind of came from. So yeah, no nobody really knew it came out. <laughs> it just kind of went way under the radar. I'm surprised that I even knew that it came out because I had been watching its uh production from the beginning. You know, I, I knew that Empire was making this movie and it took them almost four years to finally, you know, get it made and get it released. So whatever. Uh blah blah blah. <laughs> And do you, I mean, I was going to ask you, like, what is your relationship to the movie? You said, like, you knew that it was coming out. You knew they were making it. You had a particularly weird theater experience with it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how in detail you want to get about that, but, like, what is your personal relationship to the movie? I I loved a lot of the uh, Empire pictures that that came out in the early to late 80s, and um, they really push their budgets to the limit. I mean, they're a very low budget um, independent studio, but they really tried to do interesting stuff that kind of uh, uh, just went above and beyond what, what you would expect. 
And I remember buying magazines like Cinefantastique and Fangoria and stuff like that. And they were talking about the production of this movie. They had like behind the scenes pictures and stuff of the giant models that they were using out in the middle of the desert. And I'm like, holy fuck, these guys are going all out. And this sounds exactly like what I want to see. But then it took, you know, years for it to finally get completed because Empire Pictures went bankrupt uh, during the production of this movie. Um, and then once it once it finally came out, I got to see it <laughs> in one of the few theaters that played it. And uh, yes, I did have a very interesting experience. I don't know if you want to talk about that now or at the end. Uh, but, you can um, do it. Yeah, just do it right now. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> so... I'm all excited. I'm like Robot Jocks, aka Robo Jocks, which was the original title was Robo Jocks. Mm-hmm. But because it took so long in production, Robocop came out the year after they started. And so to avoid a lawsuit, they changed from Robo Jocks to Robot Jocks. Uh, but it finally came out in 1990. Um, and I brought my my best friend from high school, uh, uh albatross dave albatross ball um there with me to this little tiny theater uh in our small town that happened to be playing it and it's fun it's a little bunch of thing it's like surprising that it's playing in 1990 and it's goofy and cheesy and uh at the end it's like this uplifting ending like we can exist together whatever and there's this lady in the background <laughs> that is just bawling her eyes out like completely breaking down and me and my friend are looking at each other like there's no way this movie affected this lady like that why would she be moved to tears by such a cheese ball flick uh and while we were looking at them and seeing how what was going on because the boyfriend's talking really soft and whatnot to her uh that she was with uh, it, it really appeared that uh, he had taken her to a cheesy B movie and then <laughs> broken up with her in public. I, mean, I don't mean to laugh, but that is sad. <laughs> like it's sad and it's crazy. Like to think of that you're so excited to go see this movie. You take your best friend to go see it, and then at the same time, somebody else is like, "No, we need to just." be out in public and go to some movie where I can break up with my girlfriend and she won't make a scene. That's, that's pretty wild. <laughs> I mean, right. Right. Like how much do you really think she's that much of a psychopath or do you just really want to avoid a confrontation? It's one of the two. I think he was a douchebag and wanted to try to avoid a confrontation. Instead, he made it very obvious what he was doing. <laughs> She starts crying, Shh, no talking, right? Because it's like you go to a coffee shop or something, it's like there are like witnesses. Like you go to this like B movie, like there's only two kids sitting in the front row, like you know. <laughs> but uh, Dave was the one who we did uh, the basement watch party with Hawk the Slayer, right? Yes, yes, oh, okay, awesome. Glad to hear that. Uh, it's cool that you guys are still friends. He's the really the only high school friend that. I am still friends with. He is my, I guess I would say my bestest friend. Oh, nice. He's he's tolerated me for I don't know <laughs> what thirty years. <laughs> yeah, those kind of friendships are rare. I mean, I have like a small group of friends that I sort of 
grew up with and then uh some other high school well maybe really realistically like one high school friend that i'm still like fairly close with but yeah like a couple guys i've known for like 30 plus years and when i talk to other people it's like oh this is just like an uncommon thing and i'm like yeah well you know you grow apart and stuff but if you want to like make the relationship work then it's a two-way door you know both people have to put effort in to make that happen but that's a whole different conversation about friendship for another time. Uh, <laughs> but give the audience like a general, I guess, overview synopsis of what this movie is. OK, so we, we want like a general plot breakdown uh, sort of just thing. Like, yeah, just kind of like the general tent poles of, you know, what make up this story. OK, so this this movie takes place in the far distant future war has been quote unquote outlawed all right and there's only two factions there's the confederation which is basically russia mm-hmm. and there's the uh western nation which is basically america mm-hmm. and in they're fighting over land they're fighting over uh like continents and shit like that um, and instead of actually shooting missiles at each other, what they do is they build these giant robots that are piloted piloted by robot jocks. Uh, <laughs> nobody saw that coming. Uh, <laughs> and so these two giant robots fight each other over the land, and whichever one wins, then that 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 they win that. Um, and, uh, it, it, yeah, it's, it's a very cold war kind of based story, which since it came out in 1990, mm-hmm. <laughs> four years <laughs> after its creation, its initial idea, uh, the cold war was over. So <laughs> it, it really was, what was nonsense. Um, but it's, it's also incorporates, um, like, there's test tube babies in there versus like yeah. human. There's human pilots. There's test tube pilots that they're introducing. Um, there's that going on. Uh, there's a lot of que- there's a lot of like questions about uh, humanity and you know what makes us what and whatnot. Because uh, uh, as soon as he he like decide okay. It, it deals with PTSD uh-huh. um, uh, and uh, fucking trying to encourage every woman to just give birth. Like this is all <laughs> over the place. I mean, it, give, it really builds this real crazy fucking dystopian world, uh, which is crazy for a movie like this. Um, I'm way off the rails. Anyway, these two entities have to fight over something and then there's a bunch of drama. There we go. Yeah. And I think they end up like, I think the thing that they're fighting over in the movie, at least is Alaska. I mean, obviously it's like they're fighting for the soul of the world as like, you know, the good guys of the West fight off the evil Russian Confederation or whatever. But very early, it's like, they don't explicitly say Russia. And I'm like, this guy is a dick. I was like, is that a Russian accent? And so I'm like, okay, I'm starting to like piece it together. And like you said, by the time that this movie comes out, it's 1990. But do you remember, I think you said four years, but was that the beginning of the development was 86 or was that like the first screenplay that got written for it? 
Yeah, that was the initial gest- gestation. The idea of it started in 86. Like the actual literal production of it did not take four years. Um, but that's just when they started. Um, yeah, I love Alexander, the guy that's the Russian dude. He, every time he's on screen, I'm like, oh, thank God, here he is again. Here to chew the scenery. Uh, <laughs> Paul Coslow. Oh, yeah, I he's just fucking great. Like, he is one of the best line. He has a couple great line deliveries. I think one was, are, are, and you make my drink taste like blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, as, as he just shows up at the bar one of two times where he's not really supposed to be there and just, oh, yeah, he's here again, and he's coming to talk shit. But yeah, it's, he's a very interesting character in this movie where even though he is like the evil russian stereotype he's almost like the most normal person in the movie (laughs) like the most realistic normal person it's like okay he is an evil russian but that's like kind of baseline for what some of these other character choices are so i understand like when he shows up it's like okay the movie is slightly more serious while he's there and i think it's better off for that yeah, I I mean, there's one line, and uh, I'm not even looking at my notes right now because it stuck out to me where he goes, he he's like goading um, Achilles. And by the way, we got to mention that there's there's all this underlying themes and shit going on still. There's Achilles and Athena and all that. It's all based on the Iliad, mm-hmm. which was their original idea. But uh, at one point, um, Alexander is uh, goading Achilles, and he says. What is it that you fight for? Um, and it's like, huh, yeah, what is he fighting for? He's fighting for people. That's why he sacrificed uh, or, you know, sacrificed the uh, fight to save those people, even though he didn't. Alexander claims that he's fighting for the greater good of his country or whatever you want to call it. But at the end of it, he ignores what they tell him. Ooh, I'm jumping to the end, aren't I? Uh, he ignores That's what okay. they're telling him to do. <laughs> and, and he's like, fuck it. He's, uh, he's bloodthirsty. He likes fucking killing people, man. Um, so uh, it turns out at the towards the end, that's what he's fighting for. Yeah. And it raises some interesting questions about sort of like duty or service, because while this is set in a dystopian future where, they're telling us that war has been outlawed. It's like, well, yes and no. You say war is outlawed, but now we're just building giant war machines. There's <laughs> espionage. The pilots are essentially soldiers who are celebrities as well. It's a little uh, like American gladiators with them, but there's all this uh, time dedicated to the conversation of Achilles' contract. And him mm. not even being able to read, he just signed the contract. So it's like as a, a soldier in this sense, he's he's there to fight and he's there to fight for the cause that he believes is the correct cause. But when it comes down to like, oh, duty, he's like, nope, that was my 10th fight. I don't need to fight again. 
I was just trying to like make sure that I got out of this alive and then somebody else can take up the mantle, which is very different than we get from Alexander, who's like, you basically have to like pry him away from that because like you said, he's bloodthirsty. He enjoys the the violence of it and that's what he's in it for. So it does raise a lot of questions with the eugenics stuff going on in the background and how they're planning on passing that torch. And even Alexander says like he won't fight one of those uh, mm-hmm. test tube babies, the tubies. So mm-hmm. Alexander ain't going to be tubing. And <laughs> <laughs> and it makes it a little bit more interesting in terms of the psychology of these characters than maybe you would take at surface value as like, okay, this is in the realm of like low budget sci-fi and it's trying to do some heady things. But, you know, in talking or in reading what Stuart Gordon and Joe Halderman were sort of like butting heads about throughout the production was basically the tone of the film where Haldeman is like, no, this is supposed to be like intellectual sci-fi for adults. And Gordon's like, well, I see your point, but I'm making a movie about stupid robots punching each other for (laughs) kids that also adults can enjoy. So it's kind of nice to see that they were able to come to terms with both sides of what their ideological approaches to making the film were. Yeah. I mean, I I think it was uh, the way I read it. And one was like uh, Holderman wanted to make a movie for adults that kids could enjoy. Mm -hmm. And Stuart Gordon was making a movie for kids that adults could enjoy. Um, And yeah, those two things definitely do clash and you can see it in the film. I mean, it's, it's, it it is a little disjointed at points, um, but yeah, they kept Halderman on there even though they were clashing. Um, they had him on set to work with the uh, actors and stuff. He was there pretty much through the whole thing, um, and there's no not there wasn't really any hard feelings between uh, Stuart Gordon and Joe Halderman either. Uh, they they came out of it <laughs> still liking each other. But I think I think you misunderstood what um, Achilles, um, uh, like reasoning was when when he he backed out of the rematch. Mm-hmm. He wasn't backing out because okay, I'm done and I can just live in peace and da 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 da. He was doing it because he was dealing with all of the guilt uh, of all of those three hundred plus people dying in the in the last fight. He was having. PTSD, nightmares and shit about that. And all he could see were these people dying and he couldn't see himself getting back in, into into the cockpit and, and going back out there. Yeah, he gets into some arguments with Athena over that at some point. And it's one of the things that I think the movie doesn't handle great, but it's there. And I would also assume that this isn't the first time that people have been like injured as bystanders in an event. This just happened to be the worst of them. So it's probably coming at a time like in his career where it's like, oh, not only is it the last time that I was supposed to get in here, but it was like the worst casualty count of all of them. I'm not interested in being a part of this anymore. So it is like it's asking him about his responsibility that he's perceived to have towards the cause, right? Because they really lay on the pressure to him thick, like they're basically telling him like whatever the amount of money is that you need to come back we'll do that and then he eventually comes back not because of money 
But because of all of that stuff that you just mentioned that he's dealing with internally, he doesn't want that for Athena. So he's like, I'm in order to protect her from that and the risk of, you know, losing to Alexander where he's going to smash her anyway. He wants to step in and be that like guardian for her in that way as well. Yeah, um, he uh, by the way, I thought it was really cool. Um, that when she takes over the robot and she does it without anybody's permission, she breaks out of there. She probably injured a lot of people doing it too. (laughs) (laughs) She goes out onto the battlefield and everybody's like, no, you bitch, what the fuck are you doing? But eventually they all are behind her and giving her tips and trying to tell her what the best thing to do, including Achilles. Yeah. Like they are like, okay, she's all right. She can do this. But once she's on the ground, that's when Achilles goes, "Okay, I got to hop in my flying car and go rescue the lady. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Thank God that flying car was super uh, conveniently parked close to where he needed to get to. Oh, Uh, oh, all the time. (laughs) And it's remote controlled, man. I mean, (laughs) I mean, it's the future, so we'll give him that. But he's got like he's got the one nice flying car that we see. I don't think they could have uh, they didn't have the budget to make a second one. But for the people that look at this and say, like, this is a bad movie, right? It has a. Uh, a 5.4 on IMDb. It's not even on Metacritic, but it's got a 40% tomato score, 42 audience score. So fairly low overall. So what would be your best guess as to why someone looks at this and says this is bad? Well, it's probably going to come down to the budget. Uh, I was just talking to somebody about this and it was like, um, Robot Jocks is like the la- one of the last gasp of the 80s independent studios that really swung for the fences. Yeah. They didn't have the budget to compete with Hollywood, who had now taken over everything that the B-movies had been doing in, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, you know, with Jaws and whatnot. You know, the major studios started doing that. So these guys were still trying to keep up. Um, This was the biggest budgeted film that Charlie Band produced for empire pictures i think he spent six million on it uh which most of his movies were like one million (laughs) usually um so yeah they he he initially said he originally said no i don't want to do it it's going to cost too much money and he changed his mind because i guess he liked stewart and he liked the idea and he thought it could work um, so he dumped a lot of uh, money into it. Now I forgot what I was talking about. God damn it. <laughs> so people would say that it's generally bad because oh, yeah. it's low budget. The budget. Mainly. Yeah. And hey, it's cheese ball. I get that. It It That's is. Fair. It's, but, it's I mean, pretty cheesy. It's cheesy. And so like you see where the money didn't go. But when you see where the money. <laughs> yeah. You see where the money did go too. And for the most part, like this is a good looking film. Damn. I was I was actually really impressed. I mean, OK, some of the stop motion, like whatever, it's the 80s. It's going to be what it is. You can't really like get around that. But a lot of the like the suit work that you were talking about, I don't know if it was like I couldn't tell. I was like, is this a person wearing a mech suit? Because it seems to me moving in a way that 
I don't, it doesn't feel clunky in the way that I would expect it to, like the way they made it seem uh, scale wise was done very well too. So I couldn't quite put my finger on, like it can't be in a full animatronic because it wouldn't move that fluidly. So they, they did that aspect of it, especially later in the movie, very, very well. There are some astoundingly fucking awesome scenes in this film. Yeah, especially when it comes to the special effects, because that's where they spent their money. Um, and when I talk about Darkman, I'm always like, man, it's just amazing. All the different things that Sam Raimi and everybody used, all the different effects kind of uh, mm-hmm. uh, techniques. They did a lot of that with this, the 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 compositing, the uh, the rear screen. Um, they did the stop motion. They they did build giant fucking models. Uh, they were at least like four, five feet tall almost. And they were animatronic. Mm. And they shot all this shit like out in the middle of the desert. <laughs> they, they they thought it was going to take like six months. It took them a year and a half. Oh, my God. Get all this shit done. Um, so, yeah, there's there are animatronics. Uh, they also built like a uh, full size. If Whenever you see like... Um, anybody walking past the feet of the robot to mm-hmm. like go and get in it. They built that full size. Yeah. To scale. It, it, yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> fucking crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And so like, that's why I was trying to wrap my head around like, okay, did they build like sort of an exosuit like we saw in, uh, with like the power loader that Ridley uses in, or excuse me, Ripley in aliens, right? Like, did they build sort of an exosuit that you get inside and you can move it around so that way, you know, you shoot it from a certain angle, you don't see the person in it. Just so much of the movement of the the actual robots was so much better than I expected in so many different moments that I was like, wow, I was like, they really like put in work to build all this stuff and to make it look good. And, it, it, you know, it, it's a shame that this movie wasn't celebrated, at least you know, for my generation of kids in the way that we would have had I known this existed in the first place. Right. If you had known it was there, you would have gone to see it. But nobody fucking knew it was there. I think uh, somebody even like wrote a review or something where it was like, uh, (laughs) if it it was in my town, I didn't know. Um, So it's like, uh, they probably didn't have the money, but I mean, because Empire went out of business. Um, the movie wasn't done. So another studio, like a a, a, a small studio came in, uh, picked up the rights to it and put a little extra money into getting it finished. And I'm sure that they just didn't have the money for a, a big marketing campaign. Um I mean, I'm surprised it got into theaters at all, dude. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it's like this is a movie that had I like just stumbled across it at like Blockbuster or something, I probably would have just rented it over and over and over again and just like watch it for three days, return it, come back, rent it again next week, watch it for the three days while I have it. And that cycle over and over. I had those kind of movies and some low budget ones, too. So I was like, this is right in my wheelhouse. But yeah, I don't remember any advertising for it at all at the time. But it's probably a good time to hit the dial on the Wayback Machine, go to the trailer, 
yes. see what this trailer actually looked like. Look at that segue. Yeah. This is a master of his craft, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Uh, what window am I even looking for here? Let's see. Is it this one? Maybe. It's probably the one with the trailer on it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Is this the right one? Can you see that? <laughs> um. Yeah, I see it with a bunch of other nonsense, too. Yeah. I see your notes. Oh, I'm stealing your notes. Oh, well, it shouldn't show my desktop. I said share. <laughs> it did. Let's try I this again. Your notes. Oh, Air give window. me your uh, notes, dude. There we go. I want to make sure I can full screen it the right way. There I want to know your secrets. I want to know how, how you get so good. <laughs> you just pretend that you're good until other people start <laughs> believing it. That's how we do it. All right, let's take a look. <clears throat> I don't hear anything. No, no audio. No, man. Look at this. See, I oh. told you I'm not good. Yeah, you're not <laughs> as good as I thought. Damn it. Fuck. <laughs> Before we get to that trailer, it's time for a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Bad Movies We Love is brought to you by Karate for Kids. That's right, that's karate, the number four, kids. If you're anything like me, and let's face it, if you're listening to this, then you probably are, then you likely grew up watching a lot of poorly choreographed fighting that got passed off as martial arts. We're talking real American ninja stuff here. And if you ever tried to mimic what you saw on screen in a real fight, there's a good chance you got your ass kicked. While there's no time machine to undo those beatdowns, you can prevent this from happening to the next generation by signing your progeny up for Karate for Kids. Their instructors are fully trained and highly decorated in movie fight techniques. So not only will your kids know how to defend themselves, they'll know how to make it look good too. So don't let your kids repeat your mistakes and sign them up for Karate for Kids. That's karate with a four. And now, back to the show. All right, let's try one more time. Share sound. There we go. <laughs> Take me back. Yeah? Sound? Yeah, we got it. Okay. <laughs> it's a new age of combat. Hey, they got the real trailer guy, though. I will say they did not spend money on the combat training. <laughs> Wait, hold on. At war with each other. Nice! I have already killed you. Two invincible men. Alexander, here now. The ultimate killing machines. I'm gonna get in this thing, and I'm gonna kick your. I mean, the music for the trailer is good. Oh shit! He's got a chainsaw penis. Oh, man. Chainsaw dick, baby. The battle's over. Not for me. Who saw that coming? <laughs> oh, yeah, they go to space briefly. Well, who knew? <laughs> the whole time they could fly? <laughs> right, I guess, you know, we we do see Alexander flying briefly at one point, but... Well, he, yeah, he flies into the battle thing, right? Yeah. But he's not in, in like, space <laughs> mode. He hasn't transformed. Because yeah. that's, that's another big thing about this. It's like, they transform in the big final battle. There's, like, their flying form, and then 
Uh, Achilles has his tank form, which is kind of goofy, but I mean, still pretty awesome because you saw it from the beginning. Every time mm-hmm. he walked, you could see the tank treads on his legs. Mm-hmm. But, and I was but, like, what are, what are those there for? And then, oh, right? hey, <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> it's in case the robot wants to sit down. Yeah. You know, sometimes <laughs> you just got to take a load off. But, you know, they make this thing of like, oh, it's Achilles. The robot had like the ankle injury as well. So it's like you knew at some point, like he wasn't going to be on his feet the entire time <laughs> but you know they had to build like a little motorized version of that to drive around and like little it, uh, well <laughs> <laughs> it's not full size it's not a hundred <laughs> feet tall <laughs> a to scale model <laughs> but yeah like the design of it is really good the design of both the robots is really good and like the more I watch it, I'm like, okay, so was like Guillermo del Toro a fan of this when thinking up how he wanted to do Pacific Rim? Because a lot of the building blocks are there for Pacific Rim. And, you know, I read that there was supposed to be a sequel for this where you would have Achilles and Alexander teaming up in their, you know, Jaegers to fight aliens. And this is something that never came to fruition, but it was talked about. Who knows? I don't. This is what I read. I don't know. I didn't talk to Stuart Gordon about it. Well, but. you gotta, you gotta hook me up with wherever you read that. Okay, I'll send it to you when we get out of here. That's uh, new to me. Yeah. So, but I mean, like thinking of that, I'm like, okay, well, that basically is the premise for like Pacific Rim. You have different nations with their different giant robots and they're coming together and the robots are different. Their fighting styles are different. Their programs for training, their pilots are different. So just interesting to see that like an idea like this could exist and then have it sort of be unknown. And then you get a guy like Del Toro with people who are willing to back the budget and believe in the idea. And you put the story together and then, you know, 20 years down the line or so it's Pacific Rim. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if anybody wonders what we're talking about, if you haven't watched the movie, which you can for free on Tubi. Yeah, or um, on Prime, if you have Prime. Prime as well. Yeah, without commercials there. Um, but if you don't subscribe, you can get it for free on Tubi. Um, basically, the the robot... I almost said robo-jocks. <laughs> <laughs> the robot-jocks. They get into the machines and they suit up And what they do inside the cockpits is what the robot does outside, which is kind of what you see in Pacific Rim. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not psychically linked or mentally linked or anything, but it's very much what you see there. So, yeah, I love this fucking movie, dude. (laughs) I fucking love (laughs) this movie. Uh, There's so many great ideas, and especially uh, because of uh, Halderman writing it um because he's a renowned uh sci-fi author um there's there's some great dialogue in there as well i love when uh haskimoto maskimoto i can't remember his name matsumoto matsumoto i don't know i probably have it pulled up i could look at it if i wanted to dr matsumoto Matsumoto. dr doc matsumoto (laughs) (laughs) um he's like we all remain who we were before within every old man is a young child. And I was like, holy fuck. That's so true because I'm going to be 50 this year. And I still feel like a fucking little kid. 
freaking out about giant robots punching each other. That's just great. <laughs> yeah, and it's a line of dialogue that, like, when you think about this movie, it's like that's a pretty like philosophical, heady thing to say in this movie. But I think it's when he's addressing Achilles about like some of the trauma he's gone through. Is that right? No, he's he's talking to Tex, uh, the uh, that's yeah, the spy, the yeah, yeah. The guy who the guy in the cowboy hat, like, surprise, he's a spy for the Confederation. I'm like, of course he is. <laughs> I was like, OK, they they set us up for that one. But like when you had mentioned the budget was six million, like one of the things that I was thinking as I took notes, I was like, was this considered like a big budget movie at the time? Because it is thoughtfully constructed. I mean, even like down to the design of the spacesuits. Like, it is very 80s, but in the best possible way. Like, everything is very colorful. I mean, you know, they're wearing, like, spandex uh, unitards at some point because it's like, yeah, this is what all astronauts train in. And so it's like, yeah, he's a cross between an astronaut and, like, an American gladiator. But the look of that is really good. And the design of, like, the cockpit is really good. Like I said, the robot design is actually fantastic. I mean... The time that had to go into sort of like the conceptual drawings for the robots and then executing like, hey, what can this look like in terms of being something that is like both menacing, cool, but also functional because we're going to have to film this thing moving. And that's not an easy thing to do. But this isn't a movie that was like haphazardly construction constructed when it comes to those design choices. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of thought put into it. And uh... I will point out part one of the funny things about their their suits that they wear uh, is that on the gloves they have like it almost looks like a power glove sort of yeah but the cords going into it they're just audio video RCA cables <laughs> <laughs> I mean but it works it works um, yeah six million was was definitely not a lot and I I, I believe that's that's the amount that was spent. Um, as I was listening to what uh, uh, what Stuart Gordon was saying um, on on the commentary and whatnot, um, it's it's not a lot of money, especially considering what they were doing. If you spend six million on a movie where you were just in a cabin in the woods with some gore effects, yeah, that'd be pretty fucking high budget. But yeah, you got giant robots and all of these special effects going on. That that's paltry compared to anything else. Oh, um, uh, yeah. By the way, I wanted to point out you mentioned the cockpit. Mm -hmm. So you see a lot of shots of the cockpit, like later on throughout the film. But the very first shot of the cockpit you see, if if you if you go back and watch it, because I know you love robot shots, so you got to go <laughs> back and watch it again. Um, if you look at the cockpit on the uh, cockpit on the very first shot, there's barely anything on the walls. It's really bare and like it looks cheap. And apparently somebody said that to like Stuart Gordon and they're like, hey, man, uh, what the fuck is this jank ass shit? And so <laughs> <laughs> they went and they added a bunch of electronics and buttons and switches and lights and shit. <laughs> so every time you see it after that, it looks way better. Who's got RCA cables lying around? We need to plug some <laughs> shit in and make it look professional on here. Uh, but like you know you go back to sort of like the very outset when we see the first fight and so 
you have to like build all this stuff to scale in certain moments and then to like match all that up there's a craft to that that i think is a like really the through line for this movie because sometimes like the characters are all over the place like athena in one moment is being like very nice and like i want to learn from you and the next moment is she's like you're a traitor i hate you and like her her motivations uh sort of like pivot very quickly from one thing to the other thing and it's like okay i know she wants to fight but to be a trainee and just immediately jump to like you're a coward and then oh hey like thanks for the scarf like there, there's that like tonal imbalance with that side of the storytelling but like it all just like points us back to wanting to see the robots in action so by the time the point in the film comes around where her sort of competition her uh issues with achilles come to a head and she tranks him in the back i'm like <laughs> okay she's like very ambitious and like she really wants this a lot more than you know they had they had maybe let on at that point because she's a trainee she's uh she wins the the future jungle gym jungle gym extreme where it's like shaking and electrified and then it like turns on fire and burns their hands and like all kinds of different stuff. But she wins the competition to become like the next robo jock. So she's the heir apparent to what Achilles has achieved. And like she's very invested in getting what he has. But uh, I like that the movie sort of hits the brakes there and puts them in a position or at least puts Achilles in a position to really explain that like you don't know what it is to do this like sure you were born for this you've been training for this but like you don't know the burden of it so when you're talking to me about wanting to get out of contracts or this or that or not being afraid and luck and all these things that she's willing to blow off he's like there to actually give her some sort of real world advice about the situation. He's like, this isn't American gladiators, right? This isn't this thing that we do for TV and fame. This is something where a lot of people's lives are on the line, where you're going to be scared, where it's life or death and you're treating it sort of haphazardly. So he does like take her under his wing in that way. And I mean, the scene where she steals the robot though, is pretty crazy i mean it's a good like heist move where it's like okay she tranks him in the back dresses up gets inside and then she starts fighting people off and once she has control of the robot i'm like isn't there any way to like actually shut this down besides just her having complete control and they do they stop the platform and then she climbs her way out of there but like that moment too it's done so well that it just it looks like the robot is alive and i was taken aback because looking at it, I'm like, okay, there's got to be somebody in a suit. It's moving too well. <laughs> and then in the next scene where like uh, where Alexander's robot is landing and they're just like, oh, let him waste fuel or whatever. Uh, like you see the strings like from the the what is it? The deployment as it's lowered down to the ground. It's like, oh, they're just the strings are there because you can't avoid having strings. I mean, we watch Godzilla movies. There's lots of strings. involved, <laughs> So it's just an interesting like juxtaposition of we have this big giant machine 
that like obviously can't fly. We can't move it on its own that well. And we have to shoot it in a way that it looks menacing and its entrance is done in this style. And then on the other side of it, you're doing things like super practically and moving this other robot very well. And it just it all comes together really nice, like on the battlefield so that when you get to that moment, it's like all of the other stuff sort of melts away. And whether or not like you're invested in the characters, whether or not uh, Achilles's motivation for what he's done, like makes sense, doesn't make sense, whether Athena's does or doesn't. They're all on the same page because it's like, well, now there's going to be a fight and we all have to like be in this together. And I really actually enjoyed that way more than I anticipated when it happened. Ah, oh, that's really fucking cool to hear, man. I'm glad I'm not alone. Um, <laughs> it's it's a very surprising film. Um, you brought up the opening scene. Uh, uh, they actually filmed that, I think, back in 87, just to get financing for the film. So that was oh, wow. all shot separately. Um, none of the human stuff was in that. Like, you know, when they cut to the, I concede, I concede. And Alexander goes ahead and stomps on the fucking dude. Um, the human stuff wasn't there, but all the robot stuff was. And they showed that to investors and went, anybody want to help us make this movie? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, yes. Um, so I'm glad that they kept it in there. Um, the Athena thing, man. Yeah, she's she does waver back and forth. and she Because, well, she's a test tube baby. And they're just brought up to fight. That's it. You hear them say it multiple, multiple times. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not over until somebody wins. And that's why she calls him, like, you know, a coward or whatever. You're not going to see the fight till the end. Not understanding the humanity within where he's like, all those people died and I can't deal with it. And then I think she starts to battle with, you know what? I'm not just a fucking war machine i'm i'm a human too as well i think she might be struggling with that maybe i'm reading too much into a b movie let us <laughs> ladies and gentlemen uh, <laughs> but i don't uh, think so i think that's there and i think like it's intentionally there from haldeman because you have like the the old butthole face lady who <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Like, I just I couldn't help it when I watched it. I was like, her face is just like always puckered. But she's like the scientist running the Tubi program and they stop and they have this conversation about like whether or not these people being bred in test tubes are really people like qu this existential question of like, do they have a soul and what that means to what you're asking them? to do like and i think that is particularly important when achilles is talking to athena about luck and fear because i think his point is at least partially that like fear is the motivator that keeps you alive in that moment because if you're not afraid you're not going to take the situation seriously as if the risk is you dying so right. like he recognizes that where they don't. And that's an important distinction. And it's a like it's an interesting tipping point in the film as well. Yeah, I mean, and you talking about they, they don't really treat them as human people. You know, when we're first introduced to them, it's him and Tex. And uh, they're both looking at, him, at at the at the the two bees, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and they're just like, yeah, fucking fuck these people are not people, basically. 
And you, you know, also seeing all of the posters that are like prenatal, get pregnant. There's all these posters of like pregnant women all over the city. It's really fucking creepy. Um, according to Stuart <laughs> Gordon, uh, the one of the like the poster that said prenatal, I think, actually came from like Russia or something. Oh wow! Um, they blew it up and and put it on there. <laughs> but I mean, it almost seems like. People aren't wanting to reproduce anymore all that much. And maybe the test tube babies are going to be taking over the whole population. Because when he goes to his brother's house and he's talking to his, uh, um, I guess that would be his sister-in-law. I'm not, I'm not good at family math. Um, yes. Brother's wife, sister-in-law. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she's pregnant. And, and he's like, oh, hey. And she goes, oh, well, you know, just doing our part. Yeah. And then she says, "By you know, if you have six children, you get three bedrooms. So if they have another kid, they get a bigger fucking apartment. So the government is, like, in- encouraging you to fucking fuck. <laughs> yeah, they, they want procreation. They don't really, like... They don't, I mean, this is like post-nuclear war, I think, when we get introduced to it. So it could be that, yeah. like, oh, there's been a lot of, like, radioactive fallout. It's causing issues with uh, pregnancy and procreation. So there's incentives. There's, pro, like, basically fertility programs in order to help uh, reestablish the population. But that's a little, like, stuff that, like, hangs out in the background, doesn't really get put on display. But I think it shows you, like, the the foundation of what actually is a pretty intellectual sci-fi idea that ends up being a sci-fi B movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's not the focus, but I'm really impressed by the way that they build out this world in the background. Um it's it's really impressive that they they would they, they they were able to do this on you know what a what a movie that everybody just dismissed when it came out. A lot of people dismiss it now. You'll find it on a lot of, you know, like bad good or good good. It's like fucking wow. even if it's what are you talking about? If if you enjoy it, it's good. It's not <laughs> bad good. It's just good good. What the fuck? <laughs> well, one of my favorite moments in the whole film is at the very beginning where it's just it's one of the first establishing shots, like right after they I think it's a voiceover where they tell us what's happened with the nuclear war and stuff, but there's a panning shot that's like shot really low. And it reminds me a lot of Terminator where it's done with model size effects and it's just showing sort of this snowy, I'm going to guess it's probably like Siberian forest or whatever and there's the remnants of these scattered ships these remnants of humanity and this idea that the world that we know as the audience has been replaced by this world that we're stepping into and it's an interesting just filmmaking technique to do things that way because i think when you look at something like say the matrix right we start in the matrix we start with the wool over our eyes so to speak and then the further that that film goes then we get it pulled back and we get a glimpse of the real world and like this is the opposite of that where 
we start in the post-apocalypse. And that's a hard place to start a film because you're asking the audience to like buy into whatever it is that caused the apocalypse. Unfortunately, with a movie like this and the fears of nuclear war, especially, you know, at a time in the mid 80s when this movie was being incubated, those fears are fairly realistic and the threat of nuclear war and especially nuclear winter are pretty much right over the horizon. So the fact that the filmmakers decided to take a fairly serious idea and make that the foundation for the rest of the story, I think is pretty cool because you could make this a lot more just like Rock'em Sock'em Robots, right? You don't have to put any real intellectual thought into this. If you just wanted to be like, hey, there's there's a, there's pilots that pilot huge robots. They fight each other for sport, and that's kind of it, and that's what we want it to be. But we get a, a pretty smart sci-fi script and uh, a well-intentioned and thoughtful filmmaker together and while they can't marry the ideas 100%, I love the fact that what we get from both of them, I think, are enough to make one another stronger. Because if this movie is like karate robot pilot school, and that's the whole movie, and like we're watching a lot of subpar karate in training, and like that's what the, that's what the core of the film is, I don't think we get what's worth it in the end. And then if the movie is too heady and too buried into the the politics of the world that we're in or uh, some of the background information of like, oh, here's what the, the government's doing and why women can't get pregnant. And uh, here we're going to get into eugenics. Like if you really spend too much time doing that, you're going to miss out on the giant robot fight that we all came to see. So I think at the end of the day, we get a pretty good balance overall between the two and they prop each other up to the point where like we both come to this place where as they're on the radio with Athena when she's in the cockpit it's like necessity but it also is like this interesting symbol of like what the movie is it's like here you have this like eugenics test tube baby who's now taken over and on the other side of it you have all the old school the guy with the cowboy hat all the like basically the grunts almost in comparison and they all have to work together towards a common goal. And I kind of like that that is a microcosm of like what the idea of the movie is. Yeah. I don't know why my camera keeps kicking <laughs> off, man. Uh, Bosco. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, Stuart and, and Holderman work really good together, even when they're clashing. Uh, Cause those two originally, they were going to do a film adaptation or like a, a TV movie adaptation of Holderman's uh, sci-fi book. Um, I can't remember. I've got it written down. There's, somebody knows what it is. Uh, that <laughs> uh, They were going to do that, and then that got canceled. So Stuart instead ended up having it done as a, as a, as a stage play. Because that's uh -oh. where Stuart Gordon came from. He was a, a a theatrical director. He directed plays and, and stuff like that. Holderman even wrote the the uh, the stage play adap adaptation of that. So that's how they started working together initially. Hmm. And then and then Stewart was like, you know, I want to do uh, the Iliad. 
Uh, I want to talk about, you know, all this. And um, that. so they kind of like wrapped that into Robot Jocks. And those guys really do play off off each other. Yeah, man. I, I mean, I would love a movie with with I would love this movie with more robot punching in the middle. Yeah. Because you, you start out, you've got your intro, right, where it kind of like establishes everything. Then you get the opening fight between Achilles and Alexander. God damn, Alexander, every time he's on the screen. Uh, <laughs> and then you got the whole middle section where it's dealing with characters and, and the world and whatnot. And then we get our big battle at the end. I would love something in the middle, but they definitely could not afford that shit. No, not at all. But, you know, I I think it's bookended at least by the stuff that you want to see. So you're not left wanting that at the end. And you do. I mean, the I guess what point in the movie is that first Achilles Hercules fight where the all the people die in the stands? Uh, I, I that's probably like 15 minutes in, I think okay. 10, 15 minutes in. That's right. You get, yeah. Cause this is the whole introduction and, and yeah, it kind of like tells you exactly who your two, two characters are. <laughs> yeah. And well, as the, as they are bringing Achilles up in the, in the, like the lift and they're bringing him out onto the, the battlefield or whatever. And I see people like in the bleachers. I'm like, this is a horrible. Idea. <laughs> <laughs> And then it's like they have these big sun shields, which I couldn't even tell, like until they show the inside shot that you can see through them. So right. I'm just like, oh, man, like not only are you sitting in the stands, like majorly in harm's way, <laughs> but you can't see shit if you're not in the first couple of rows. So then when they do the like the flashback and we see that, oh, he he falls through and they all see it about yeah. to land on them. I'm like, OK, at least I understand that. But. Yeah, they they frame it as this was the worst of the incidents that had happened. And that sort of uh, propels a conversation that was happening within. uh, I don't know if it was called not the Confederation, but whoever the officials are that oversee the battle. They were having a conversation internally before that moment of removing spectators from the event altogether. So it was like, oh, well, I guess enough people died this time for us to actually do something about it, which is like a bureaucratic decision, which, you know, you don't have to include something like that in a story about robots fighting. But <laughs> the fact that it's there, I think, points to this larger world building that they did that really goes a long way in this movie, even though you kind of maybe don't have to notice it. It's right. like, it's done in a nice, subtle way. It doesn't beat you over the head with it. And similar, I think, to what I was talking with Donald about for Event Horizon is that so much of the time is sort of spent walking through the ship and like just seeing the production design and letting that do the world building for you without necessarily having a ton of exposition or anything like that to get the audience over the hump. And what it does is it gives the audience credit for being smart enough, even though this is like directed at kids, giving the audience credit for being smart enough to sort of pick up on what's going on without having to have it spoon fed to them. And that's like, it seems like it's a little bit of a lost art these days. Yeah. We, uh, so many people are whiny babies that uh, if something isn't explicitly spelled out or shown on screen, it's considered a plot hole. That's bullshit. <laughs> you, you know what? Use your fucking brain. 
because well, I'm and I also love at one point they say, uh, those those people signed a waiver, right? Yeah, right. So those people's lives are useless. It's actually, uh, they say some other things that makes it seems like you know what those people are are useless. They're poor. They're just the people that that exist down there. I'm wondering if like the uh, the 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 glass screen or whatnot um, over that is partly because it, maybe at that point the ozone layer was still a big deal, uh, and plus the nuclear fallout and whatnot. Because <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, everybody in the city they're all, they all have masks. Like they wear masks. Yeah. COVID, COVID wasn't going on. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> nuclear COVID, right? And, so, and they have hats and and hit. Jeffrey Combs is one of our one of our. Uh, yeah, he is. One of our audience members, <laughs> man. like a Stuart Gordon regular. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was disappointed that like I, I was happy to see him, obviously, and then I was like, oh, he's barely in this movie, but I'm like, hey, you know, still still cool to see him. Uh, Gave it a gave it that little extra nudge for me, like, hey, here's another thing that you like to help uh help you swallow this pill here. But wait, yeah. hold on. I, one of the funniest things was because all these people are betting on the fight too. Mm-hmm. So these two robots are fighting for which which let's just say nuclear power is going to own the country or the or whatever. And these people are betting on it like a sport. And at one point, Jeffrey Combs' guy comes back with a ticket, and Jeffrey's like, who'd you bet on? He goes, oh, I put 40 on Achilles. He goes, I want half of that. And he grabs (laughs) the ticket. He's yanking on it. It's like, how are you going to get half of that if you tear the ticket in half? It doesn't make any sense. Well, anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, we uh, don't know. We don't have future gambling works. It's like as long as you have <laughs> half of this piece of paper, you get paid half of the payout. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is this. I mean, like, especially now when, you know, I watch football every weekend. I'm a big football fan. And we're at the point now where the league is penalizing players for gambling. Which I understand if they're gambling on their own team, but it's like, you know, if you played on a Thursday and you're betting on some game on Sunday, like that doesn't bother me at all. But the league is cracking down on it. But then meanwhile, every commercial break, it's Jamie Foxx selling me MGM bets. There's DraftKings. There's uh, Caesars Sportsbook, which has, uh, I think... Uh, Holly Berry is in those commercials. So every single commercial break, you're you're telling me about the joys of gambling on football. And then meanwhile, like you're chastising certain players who gambled on some game that like doesn't mean anything to them. So it is a pretty interesting look at sort of what the future of like sports gambling was going to be. And I mean, if we had something like like heads of state fighting, you know, I would bet on it. You can bet on the outcome of the presidential election if you get the right sports book to to give you those odds. I, how hard up are these celebrities? Like they're not getting enough work. They're not getting paid enough for the work that they do or did. Or I mean, now uh, I mean, I'm just I'm always disgusted by shit like that. My guess would just be that the the sports books or whatever these entities are have really deep pockets. So it's not so much that, oh, I'm hard pressed for cash. It's 
we're going to drive a dump truck full of money to your house, and we only need you to be there for, like, couple hours to shoot this uh <laughs> so it's just like it's easy money i think kevin hart has one of them too i can't remember if he's oh, seen or some yeah. other fantasy sports one but it, it's interesting to see that like this movie in 1989 saw this as like hey robot jocks is basically like a future sport and if this future sport existed you guarantee people would be gambling on this so you know again it's another thing that really fully actualizes what the idea of this future world would look like and does so in a subtle way. I just, uh, yeah, I, the world bu building is you don't have to pay attention to it, you know, but it is there. And so, you know, when you, when you dismiss it as it's, it's just giant robots punching each other. It's really low budget and whatnot. You're giving, you're doing yourself a very big disservice because if you spend a little time just actually paying attention to it, it's not going to make you cry at the end like the lady <laughs> in the theater because you're not being broken up with. But, you know, you will actually get something out of it. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioning that Stuart Gordon had came from, you know, stage productions. Uh, it it helps me understand like why the production design and the production value on this is as good as it is because you know he's not relying on at least from like his background he's not he can't rely on VFX to fill in the gaps for him like even though you know stop motion was used a little bit here the vast majority of the effects work here was done practically and. So when you get like the stop motion stuff, it's like, OK, like this is sort of at a glance. But then every opportunity we have to really do it the way that we want to do it, that will engage with the actors, engage with the audience, look better on camera. All of those opportunities are taken. And I love that. Yeah, I. Oh, shit. God. Sorry, man, I've been so distracted by my camera issues. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I. Uh, yeah, just yeah. Yeah, everything you said. Yeah, <laughs> I do want to take uh, take um, offense though about you. You brought up a couple of times that you didn't think the fight training sequences were done very well. I mean, when I saw the first opening one where they're wearing like the the little protective helmets and mm -hmm. whatnot and punching each other, I thought that one was kind of choreographed and shot pretty well. I mean, it looked pretty fast and smooth and. You know, didn't look super fakey. I thought that was done pretty well. Well, I mean, I did just watch The Beekeeper today, and I'm a generally a fan of, like, combat sports. So when I see, like, what the movies in the 80s thought was, like, karate, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> I always look at that and I'm like, okay, these are not movies that staffed, like, a hand-to-hand -hand combat expert to train <laughs> their actors to, like, have it look a certain way. It was like, okay, we're going to have some karate in here, and... Like, these spinning kicks are not great. I mean, like, hey, they went through the trouble of, like, having headgear and gloves and actually, like, going through some interesting ideas in the sparring. I'll give them that. But I'm, like, I'm looking at his, like, spinning back kick. I'm like, that ain't going to do damage to nobody. Like, is this something, is this a technique you're going to throw while you're in the robot? You're going to do a spinning roundhouse <laughs> kick to the face? Like, I don't know. But Alexander, they're like, watch out for that high kick. He likes to throw that high kick on the right side. And, hey, they were right. <laughs> um, 
Well, I mean, in the 80s, they brought Jackie Chan over. And uh, what was the name of that movie? It wasn't The Enforcer. Uh, the Protector, I think, was the name of it. And Hollywood tried to make a uh, Jackie Chan movie, but they didn't really let him, let him do any martial arts. And they tried to tell him how to throw a punch. And they're like, you know, point a gun here and there. <laughs> I think it was a James Glickenhaus film. I can't, I can't remember. Or whatever Glickenhaus film. Uh, probably canon as well. Who knows? I love those oh. movies. But uh, yeah, I mean, they didn't know what to do with fucking martial arts at, at fucking all. For them to pull this off in even the most, to make me go, hey, that's not bad. <laughs> that's pretty <laughs> impressive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it reminded me of not so much American gladiators. I mean, the outfits definitely were American gladiators inspired, but there was a show that was on like Fox and it was like a staged Kung Fu show. And I, I never remember the name of it, but it was like, oh, there's this guy and he's like at the bottom. And then it's like basically like this staged sort of Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat like tournament. I'll have to look it up and find the name of it, but that show always was like master at masters of karate. Maybe was it called masters of Kung Fu? Something like that. But yeah, like the fighting in that was meant to basically just get you across the finish line. It was like, look, we're, we know you're not paying like too much attention to this, but if you're in it just to like watch some people fight and see the story progress, like it's totally passable. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're not going to get a lot of that in this film. And you also brought up the uh the like the jungle gym yeah scene. Um I think now there was somebody involved, Ron Cobb uh helped yeah. design some mm -hmm. of the some of the robots. I think he also designed this. Um and I always thought it was the silliest fucking thing I'd ever seen. Um, because they have to shake the camera yeah. to make it look <laughs> well, they can't really electrocute the people that are on there. <laughs> There's like oil spitting out of the little pipes and whatnot. Um, uh, oh, yeah, that was what they, yeah. The reason she um, is the next um, robot jocks, not robo jocks for uh, copyright purposes, mm -hmm. um, uh, is because she made it to the top. Uh, she was the only one. That's right. She made it through the hole. <laughs> she, she penetrated that hole. Absolutely. But in, in terms of like what that sort of I'm not going to call it, I guess, like an event, like what that does is it requires like physical dexterity, stamina, problem solving, and you're competing at the same time, too. So I like the sort of like the idea of what that sort of event inspires, because that to me, I was like, this is very much like an American gladiators type event where you would have the gladiator on one side, the contestant on the other, and they're racing to the top and they may meet somewhere in the middle. And hey, to the credit of those people involved, they didn't really like fight each other off of the jungle gym at any point. They just thought, like it was just competed, I think. I thought one or two of them did like attack each other. Probably. I, I can't remember. Yeah, I got to go back this and watch like... it now. Look at that. <laughs> oh, do we? Ro Robot jocks round two. Oh, shit, babies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there was something I, I, I wanted wanted to bring up. And now I. Uh, oh, um, so Stuart Gordon. I mean, uh, I am a huge fan of Stuart Gordon. I 
pretty much love every film he's done. There's only one I haven't seen that's because it was hard to find for a long time. And it was it was called The Magical Ice Cream Suit, okay. uh, which was based on a play or something as well. Yeah. And I, what year was that? Because there, I remember that name. That was like 90 something. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think it mostly went straight to video. It, it didn't, it didn't get a, a, a huge release either, but I love pretty much everything he did. And, um, uh, when this movie was stopped in its tracks because empire ran out of money mm-hmm. and they couldn't, they couldn't finish it. Stewart went in, went on and started developing a film called teeny weenies. Um, that film eventually got reworked and it became Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Oh, wow. And Stuart Gordon was supposed to direct that. Mm. Um, he was actually going to be uh, in because it was his story and he was pushing it through and whatnot. He was going to be the director, uh, but then he had like severe health problems and he had to back out. And so can you imagine a world where Stuart Gordon the director of Reanimator yeah. from Beyond and Robot Jocks directed fucking Honey I Shrunk the Kids for what was that? That was a Disney thing, right? I think so. One of their subsidiaries, I think. Was it Touchstone, maybe at the time? Touchstone or Hollywood, one of those. Um, can you imagine if he had directed that and it be it was such a huge hit? What he could have done with that clout? Because yeah. you know, most filmmakers are like. Do one for the studio, do one for yourself. What the fuck would he have been able to pull off after that? I, oh, what could have been, man? Did you ever see King of the Ants? Yes. And, like, how is that in comparison to something like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? (laughs) (laughs) Well... (laughs) It's uh definitely uh not not child friendly. It's right, not gotcha. family friendly. It's is it super, gi- giant super ants dark. or little ants? It's no ants. No ants. <laughs> no ants. <laughs> Surprise. King of the ants has no ants. <laughs> <laughs> it's more of a uh like psychological uh kind of film. Gotcha. Um, there, there may be ants in like nightmares or flashbacks or something, but no, it is man that I want to make King of the Ants where like a dude is like in charge of all the ants and like sends them to like like Willard with, but ants. with ants. Yes. Hey, Crispin Glover is probably into something like that. So, oh, God damn, Wiggy <laughs> and Crispin Glover. God damn. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, but now's probably a good time for trivia. Time for trivia. Maybe it might be. Let me yeah. think about it. it yeah, is. let's do it. it. Is. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we had talked a little bit about sort of this being a very expensive project, and so for the first question, uh, this, as you mentioned, resulted in bankruptcy for empire oh wait i i don't think you can blame this movie specifically it was everything charlie band had been doing up to this well i'm not blaming this movie i'm just reading (laughs) trivia (laughs) 
this was, I guess, like the last because of the size of the budget, I guess it was the last one. And they went bankrupt shortly after, not necessarily because of this movie. But do you know which production company bought the rights and finished the film? Oh, it's it's not new line. It's not new image. Oh, fuck. I can't remember the name of the company. Um, it's, it's a lesser known one. No, that is true. It was Epic Productions. Epic. Oh man. Yeah. I don't know if I'd ever seen anything by Epic aside from this. We'll have to look it up. You got Wikipedia. I do. I'll, I'll Wikipedia (laughs) this later. Uh, but, uh, question number two, we talked a lot about how Haldeman and Gordon had different ideas for what the final product was going to be. How many drafts of the script in total did Haldeman write? Oh, come on, man. (laughs) Uh, Is this coming from IMDb? Uh, This is, yeah, it's IMDb plus some of my own math. (laughs) Okay. All right. I'm going to say eight. Pretty close. It was seven. He had written, he had written six drafts of the script. They moved on, I guess, to a different screenwriter to do the final draft. They then sent it to him, and he wrote a letter to Stuart Gordon being like, this is crap, what are you doing? (laughs) And Gordon got back to him saying, you're right, it is crap. Do you want to write the final draft of the script? Can you be in Rome tomorrow? And so then, I mean, he wasn't in Rome tomorrow, but he's like, give me a week. And then they, I guess they flew like the whole family out there, put him up in a nice hotel. And, you know, he wrote the final draft on an old typewriter. So it's, it's you, a cool story, you, though. Do you know who the uh, other writer was? Not off the top of my head. Let me see if okay. it was in that little trivia thing. Let me see. I'm going to have to edit all of this out. I mean, my my brain is like completely saturated with robot jocks fucking knowledge right now. I've watched the movie three times. I've watched well (laughs) just now. I mean, I've seen it many times beforehand, but I watched it just to you know. Here's what the movie is. I've watched it with the commentary by Stuart Gordon. I even watched most of the you know the commentary for the special effects guys in a little bit of a fast forward. Do you um, have this on like the Blu-ray or something? Laser disc? Um, I would have the Blu-ray, but it was released many years ago, and I don't think it's available right now. So I got it elsewhere. Yeah, good old elsewhere. <laughs> Always reliable elsewhere. Uh, that so that piece of trivia that I had read, it just said there was another version of the script written by quote unquote somebody else. Oh, uh, I yeah. don't know who somebody else is, but maybe they're out there in the elsewhere. Uh, so question number three the screams of the spectators that are being smashed in the stand would be sampled by what band um corn uh no it was nine inch nails actually I which guess, song uh the becoming what album was that on? I have no idea. But uh, now I want to listen to that just to hear them sample it. But it's kind of cool to think that, hey, they watched this very obscure movie <laughs> that not too many people saw. They watched 300 people die under the weight of a falling robot. And they're like, you know what? 
that's going on our next album. <laughs> hey, industrial bands, man, uh, like Skinny Puppy and Frontline Assembly and Nine Inch Nails, uh, they they were always fucking into like underground. Uh, well, not even underground, but like horror and sci-fi samples and stuff like that. Uh, fucking Skinny Puppy did everything. Uh, <laughs> Frontline Assembly has a whole song where it has samples from Event Horizon, Ooh. which is one of my favorite fucking songs that they've ever made. Um, there's even a Christian band called Mortal uh, that has samples from Blade Runner and Hardware and stuff. Um, I mean, yeah, industrial bands, they're always into that. That's awesome. Blah, blah, blah. Again. Yeah. Quick aside, uh, I have been listening to this album by this underground rapper, King Ghidorah, and oh. it's got a ton of samples from like Monster Zero, uh, the first oh. King Ghidorah film. So a bunch of cool stuff uh, from that. And I was like, you know what? Maybe it's just the Godzilla fan in me that likes it. But I also sort of like that era of underground rap and just the general sound of it. So uh Every, every now and then I've been throwing that back on because I came across one song. It's called like Take Me to Your Leader, I think. And I, I heard it and I saw the artist and then I started like hearing the samples throughout the album. And I was like, oh, this is cool. This is like someone who grew up like we did watching that Godzilla stuff and was like, I'm going to base my entire career persona around this character. So it's, it's cool. So. Is it? Can I find? Is where are you listening? Spotify, yeah, it's Apple on Spotify. Music. Okay, so it might be on Apple Music. Cool. I have to check it out. Should be. Um. Now you bring. I I think this was something I wanted to talk to as uh, talk about as well. Yeah. Is the soundtrack? Mm-hmm. Like the the score for this film is fucking gorgeous. It's like, it's almost like a million dollars itself. Uh, they have a full orchestra and everything. I actually, I have the, um, I have the, I have the album, uh, in my music library. Oh, nice. Um, it's absolutely astounding. Um, I, it, 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 and it may seem a little silly with some of the visuals that you're seeing on there, but I, I don't know, man. I, I see, I keep, uh, like trying to, tamper or temper everything with what would a a, a not me think about this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what fuck that just go and enjoy the film it it, it all of it's amazing it's great Friedrich Talgorn did the music is that right yes yes has, has Friedrich done anything else that we would know this is the only one I'm aware of <laughs> oh wow that's crazy. I haven't, I haven't checked. I didn't yeah. check. It's like, all right, well, got one shot at this. Let's go ahead and uh, <laughs> let's go big. I mean, he may have done something. I just didn't look it up. Okay. Well, <laughs> I like it better as like this one-off thing that he did. And it's just like, uh, he's a musician doing other things, but he wanted to be involved in this. We'll just leave that as a myth. He's uh, the underdog. Don't, don't fact check me. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things that like stood out to me in like a weird way is that they get to the end and they just agree to like stop fighting. And then it's like the wild, wild West music kicks in. And I'm like, this seems really out of place, but it's like this heroic Western style music. Uh, 
And I'm just like, huh. I was like, it's an interesting like tonal shift to just like end the movie on that. I get it. It's like happy ending ish. You know, you're not like sad. You're kind of like prepared for maybe what might be the sequel. So maybe that was part of uh, making that little shift at the end. But to me, it just it, it was a weird choice. Well, OK, because here's the thing. All right, it's very inspiring that these two people yeah. could come to an agreement that, hey, we don't have to kill each other. That's not necessary, which is the main main point. But there's a bigger question, because the referees that yeah. have been flying around their little ship, and they make all the decisions, um, uh, who's running the referees? Who is that? That is a good question. It's a question that I ask myself because you have these two global superpowers that have deferred all of these decisions to this governing body that I don't exactly know who that is. And Alexander even was like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to stomp these little bastards because they don't like me doing all this killing. <laughs> <laughs> so you would you would imagine that there's going to be some sort of like reprisal of that idea right because i don't think we ever see anybody at like the top of the food chain for the referees we just see the referee no. sort of as an entity yeah and they're like here are the rules and it's like who makes the rules yeah who is it so if these guys agree not to fight each other it doesn't matter <laughs> the russian guys are already they have test tube babies the americans have test tube babies only for the intent of fighting war which supposedly is you know banned but yeah. no it's going to continue <laughs> it's going to continue after that this means nothing it's a pointless ending yeah so it's a, it's a little bit uh a little bit disappointing in that way but i get it at the same time like you don't maybe you don't want to like pick a side and just have it be this easy victory where it's like oh bad guy defeated good guy wins like happy ending you you kind of end on like a moral gray area which is actually kind of a bold choice especially for an action movie from the 80s to to not end with like hey good guy heroic easy one-liner gets the girl kind of thing like this actually enters into a lot more ambiguous territory and maybe is the better for it but i think the movie doesn't want you to think about that it maybe, wants you to not. It wants you to see these two people bumping their fists together right. with their RCA cables <laughs> connected to their gloves, and they agree to be best friends now. But that doesn't end anything <laughs> else that's going on on the outside. Yeah. So hey, maybe that sequel really would have been able to explore some interesting territory had they ever uh, gotten there. Man, and, you know, I had read too that they had. I don't know if they auditioned him or only considered or offered the role, but that Jean-Claude Van Damme might have been Achilles in some other alternate reality version of this film. <laughs> okay. If he wasn't busy doing Cyborg, I guess. Yeah. I mean, then at least when they had like the, the karate combat training and he's doing spinning foot slaps, it'd be like, okay, this is right at home for what I expect from a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. <laughs> um, hey, I mean, I just I just shit all over the movie at the end. And I've I've been spending most of the time talking about how great it is. I mean, 
even though the ending leaves a lot of these unanswered questions and nothing's really solved except between these two people. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's you know, really, it's really it's the fun. end of Rocky. If I had Rocky four, if I can change and you can change, we can all change. So it, you know, it is a cold war, uh, message movie in that way too. So not, not entirely out of character, but maybe a little dissatisfying. Yeah. I, you know what? That's one of my first notes that I made, made as I started rewatching it, just take notes. And I'm like, it's Rocky Four for kids that love Transformers. Hell yeah. I mean, I love Rocky Four. <laughs> I love Transformers. So it's not a surprise that I enjoyed this movie at all. But there's a lot of people out there that didn't enjoy it. And so it's probably a good time to go to Critics Corner and hear all the mean things that the critics had to say. Oh, these bastards. Yeah. Are you ready? We don't have a meta score. So. I don't yeah, get my weird. I don't I don't get my usual chart. They didn't bother adding this to Metacritic. What determines if you get on Metacritic? <laughs> I guess there just needs to be enough critics that actually like submit reviews, but if you search it, they're just like, no, sir, this doesn't exist here. So we're going to go with uh critics reviews from Rotten Tomatoes. Fortunately, there's exactly five of them, which is the amount that I need. And we'll start at the bottom, as we usually do. This is a, a 1.5 out of 4. And this is David Nusser from Real Film Reviews. Wrote this in 2006. Says, this, by and large, is irredeemably ridiculous. So, I mean, it is ridiculous, but that's what it's supposed to be, David. And, like, in 2006, you're really going to look at a movie from you know, 1990, that's about robots fighting and think ridiculous is the the key negative to take away from it? Yeah, it's like, what did you expect? I'm curious what the rest of the review was. Right, me too. It starts with dot, dot, dot. So it's a weird full quote uh, from that. Let me see if I can grab... Oh, this is... Uh, let's see, a longer... I don't know. This is like part of a weird batch of reviews from a really old website. But Tim Brayton from Antagony and Ecstasy gave this a three out of 10 on July 15th of 2013, saying it's quintessentially so bad it's good. So, uh. you know, it's one of the <laughs> it's not a, a very in-depth criticism at all but it does end with the words it's good so <laughs> you would hope that he was going to give it more than a three out of ten if his final statement says it's good but you know I'll, I'll i'll take it at face value and just ignore the score you know he's he's got to be going on the oh it's low budget yeah Ugh. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the way people sneer at shit like this. It's like, dude, without movies like this, you wouldn't have the other ones that you enjoy now. These pave the way for Hollywood to figure out what people like. Sometimes. Yeah, well, because I think the the general sort of idea behind something that's like, oh, so bad it's good, is the idea that something is like unintentionally enjoyable. And I don't think that's the case with this movie because 
like we said, a lot of thought went into the production elements and making it look good. And there's actually a lot of thought and like intellectual ideas in the screenplay that don't get fully fleshed out, but they're there. So this isn't something to me that was like accidentally enjoyable. I've had those movies where I'm like, this is such a train wreck that I can't look away and it's fun to watch the train crash. But this isn't one of those movies, at least not for me. No, it's 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 all competent. It's it and it goes above and beyond its limits. Like it's it is swinging for the fucking fences, man. Like I don't know of any other like uh low budget independent studio at in the in the 80s, especially at the end of the 80s when everything was drying up that would fucking put this much uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, effort, this much thoughtfulness, care, effort, thoughtfulness, care, creativity—all <laughs> those words—into uh, <laughs> a movie like this. It's just insane to think that they even tried. It's crazy, and no, it's not bad. It's not bad because it's low budget. It's it's, it's ambitious for sure, and maybe it's like, hey. Like you said, they're really shooting for the stars. So you fall a little short of that. I mean, at least you actually tried to do something creative like this rather than maybe being afraid to really do the full scale robots and like, hey, OK, this isn't going to work. So maybe we do something like BattleBots where, you know, they drive, they, they drive remote cars or maybe they don't even do that. They just they get into a ring and they fight and it's one on one and everything's the same, except for there's no robots kind of thing. So I'm glad that they like push the envelope to see, like, what can we actually achieve doing things the way that we want to do them? Yeah, I it's just man, it's it's so amazing. I wish more people would 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 be able to experience it and just fall in love with it like I do. You, you know. Where they they filmed this in the studio, well, the the robot stuff and all that that was done in the desert. <laughs> it was in the we middle need sand. God damn it! Well, they were like, you know what? It'll give us a lot of depth of field, and yeah, so we can have worked. the sky and the mountains and all that. But the problem was that uh, weather exists. Oh yeah. So they got, you know, rained out and all sorts of stuff like that, uh, and so that's why. Well, that's part of the reason why it took them like a year and a half to get all the effects done. <laughs> um, but they shot all of the studio stuff. And this kind of ties also back into our uh, King Kong discussion and also our other Empire film discussions. They were filming this at the studio that De Laurentiis had owned in, in Italy. So they uh, Empire had bought that. And that it, it apparently was like one of the largest studios uh, or, or at that point. And so that's where they built like the giant feet and legs and whatnot, where you could see them like, you know, actually walking around it. Um, so, I mean, that's hey, everything ties together, man. It's like poetry. It rhymes. <laughs> Sometimes. Uh, OK, so let's see. That's one, two. Uh, OK, so we're going to another. Another one that's negative this is a four out of 10, but this was written uh, at the end of last year. So somebody who had just seen it for the first time at the end of last year, I'm assuming this is Mike Massey from Gone with the Twins. 
says, From a Charles Band production, one can expect cheesiness. And the film certainly delivers yeah. when it comes to generic dialogue, comically flimsy sets, mismatched futuristic visuals, and laughable villains. Wait, wait, wait. Can you repeat that mismatch part for me? Mismatched futuristic visuals. I mean, I guess he, he, he honed in on those RCA cables and just couldn't let it go. I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. I think he's <laughs> fucking denigrating just the effects work, period. It's quite possible, but I mean, this, while not entirely the like what my brain would automatically assume was like a dystopian future, I feel like the scene setting and the set piecing was actually pretty solid for what I would think of as like a a future uh, design from the 80s, especially the mid 80s. Because like if this movie was starting its process in the 90s, we'd probably get like a slightly different look to it. But something that's from 86 at the outset, I feel like we actually got a really good look at futuristic visuals. So, I mean, he also laughable villains, so he doesn't like Alexander flimsy sets like uh. what do you mean? Flimsy sets. That's a, it's a comically flimsy sets, no less. So. You know what he's talking. You know what he's talking about is like uh, Achilles in his apartment, but his ah. apartment is specifically set up to be like a Japanese type, uh, yeah. whatever you call those. You know, with the yeah. rice walls and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, f- yeah, it's flimsy on purpose, you asshole. Exactly. Uh- <laughs> so it's like it's not this thing that was done with with no thought or no care. So that's like this. The whole thing that we've been talking about is that the the sort of criticisms of this for not having money and having to get creative where they did. And, hey, we're going to go with this style of design for the apartment. And, hey, even if it is only so that when they get into a fight and they punch through it, we have that action scene. It's like that's still done with purpose. It's not like, oh. He's in his apartment and the wall is just collapsing because it's not designed well. So those are two very different things. And I mean, it's it doesn't make sense to be critical of something that was like designed with purpose that way versus something that just like appears cheap for for no reason. A lot of people come into movies like this yeah, with with that state of mind, like it's going to be cheap. It's going to be bad. There's here's all the things I can pick on and whatnot. And it's like instead of just going, what's the story doing? What are the actors doing? What it does it all work together? Or can I just pick on, you know, hey, the the license plates weren't right, blah, 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 blah. Nitpick, nitpick. Um, I, I also like to say that what's crazy is that opening scene um with the uh, you know, in the in the winter wonderland. Um yeah. <laughs> all, of, all of that was shot on a table, like a tabletop, and a guy just like threw that together with bits and pieces and parts and whatnot, whatever he had around for that painting shot. That's um, great. Yeah. I that's they independent productions are some of the most creative fucking movies out there. And if you immediately sign it off as going it's low budget, it's going to be crap, you are really doing yourself a disservice. Yeah, because it's like you're almost like putting the prerequisite on any production you watch 
that it has to live up to a certain financial standard for it to even like make an appearance on your radar and you're you're selling yourself short and i mean i've probably been guilty of this in the past myself where it's like i would turn something on and i know immediately like that this movie is not like they didn't spend money on this and so that probably sets me you know or at least it did when I was like flipping through cable channels, but it didn't stop me from watching a lot of that stuff. It just let me know like what I'm getting into. But if you were to like flip something on and see that maybe, hey, they didn't spend the kind of money that I would like them to spend on this and you turn it off, like you're not even going to get to really give the movie a chance. You're not going to get to see what they did with that money and see the good things, because like you said, like I talked about how that opening sequence where, where it's just that panning shot on the table is one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie because it does so Gorgeous. much with so little. Yeah, it's just the ingenuity, the creativity, the sort of like the problem solving nature of that. Like, how do we set the table for a dystopian, like battle torn world that's in nuclear winter? And we do it within the budget confines that we have. And then you get somebody who's creative and it's just like all right i'm gonna build this on a table and then we're gonna shoot it miniature style and it's one of my favorite shots in the whole movie yeah i mean i i'll tell a little story okay. uh ben go ben's ahead. not here to say oh god here we go <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh god here we go it's not a bad one um, <laughs> i was in a relationship and i was like hey there's this movie called uh we are still here and i was interested in watching it we started watching it and the significant other I was with was like, yeah, this is this is fucking cheesy and and yeah, I, I don't know why. So I couldn't finish it. Mm-hmm. Um, years later, I got on Twitter and I actually started talking to the director. Oh, cool. Um, and I'm like, yeah, hey man, I don't, I never seen any of your shit, but uh, because of this, but uh, he's the guy that uh, Ted Geogen, I think, is how you pronounce it geogan or geogan um anyway uh they did this trivia thing that i was involved with so i finally picked it up and watched it again because it was no longer in that relationship and it's fucking great it's like a huge throwback to like lucio fulci Hmm. um from beyond uh uh the the house by the cemetery uh like those those kind of movies that fulci did it's a huge homage to that. And it was great. Um, but because, you know, it didn't look like a fucking $30 million movie. We didn't end up getting to watch it the first time. Yeah, that's a bummer. I mean, I feel bad that I probably disqualified a lot of movies in the past for that reason. And then, you know, 2023 rolls around and. I see a movie like Dormouse, which has uh, definitely like an unpolished look in terms of like a Hollywood production. But that's because it's not a Hollywood production. It was shot in Canada. You know, it's an indie film. And the identity of that film is about being sort of like an underdog artist. So the style of the film matches the narrative of the film pretty damn well. And it actually was a movie that when I saw it earlier in the year, I immediately went back and like watched it again, like the next day. And I was like, all right, I've got a couple days to watch this before I have to move on to something else. And so I'm glad that I can find the appreciation for that stuff now where I maybe wouldn't have before, because that same thing applied when I saw, I think Johnny and Clyde this year, which is like 
this movie has terrible reviews. I mean, like you think the reviews for this movie are bad. <laughs> but Johnny and Clyde has like a 10 maybe on Metascore. So it's it's another one of those movies where it's like I feel like I've, I'm in a place to just appreciate that stuff so much more than I would have as like a, a snobbish uh, child of like 13 or 14. Yeah, I man, just uh, I uh, I don't I don't even know what to say. Blah, blah. You can cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> blah, but, blah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do. I, I do want to say uh, when they flew off into space, mm-hmm. like towards the end, which is like, oh, my God, they could fly into space the whole time. <laughs> uh-huh. Um. <laughs> Uh, originally, like their cockpits were supposed to be able to detach from the robot mm. and then fly off, but it would cost too much. So gotcha. uh, they they didn't do that. And then the uh, footage that they used when it was crashing back into the earth, like, you know, you could see going through uh, the atmosphere or whatnot and coming back down towards the end. Apparently they got that from NASA. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna spend some of that budget on this NASA footage. I guess so. Wait, way to go, Charlie. <laughs> yeah. Hey, maybe he, you know, he knew a guy who knew a guy or whatever. But that's a uh, that's a cool little tidbit of knowledge there. I'm just really disappointed in what Charlie has become nowadays. I mean, from his start in Empire Pictures, we had greats like Ghoulies and Reanimator and. Trancers, blah blah blah. There's all these great stuff. Then he went bankrupt because, well, he bought a fucking studio in fucking yeah. goddamn Italy and shit. Yeah. And started spending <laughs> money everywhere. So then when that went bankrupt, he created Full Moon and then he started making like little lower budgeted movies like Puppet Master and Doll Man and, you know, little shit like that, which was fun. Mm-hmm. And people will rent that. Uh, but he he lost his deal with Paramount, and then as the years have gone on, it's just spending less and less money on anything. Like you've got Ginger Dead Man with <laughs> Gary Busey, Evil Bong. Ah, okay. So he made like uh, ugly ugly sweater party or stuff like that. Just terrible, terrible shit, man. Um, even the later Puppet Master films. Uh, they stopped doing stop motion, um, and they just, it's basically watching a Punch and Judy fucking puppet show, like, you know, being controlled with sticks, um, and now they're doing, uh, like, they brought Baby Oopsie, I think is the, their new series that they're doing. Basically, he doesn't have the studio in Italy anymore, definitely, he couldn't have fucking afford that, so he bought a big house, like, out in <laughs> Maine. Or the Midwest or something. And that's where they're shooting everything out of now. And everything looks like it's shot on video. And it's just, it's so disappointing. When you come from something like this, where they they were just like, let's really try to make a good movie. And now they're just like, fuck it, whatever goes on streaming, fuck it. Yeah, I mean, I'll give it to them that look, it's ambitious to buy a studio and it's hard to run. And, you know, the fact that he's even still producing movies and it's like i'm just gonna buy a, a ranch and we'll do it all there like it, at least he's like dedicated to the creative side of things even if it's not the kind of stuff that he was able to do in the past 
Well, he's got a very successful, you know, he still has the rights to Puppet Master and all that. Okay. So he's got all all the right, you know, all the income coming from that. They're uh, now putting out uh, action figures again of the Puppet Masters and whatnot. I mean, he's still raking in money. He's just not raking it in from the movies he's making because mm-hmm. he's not making good movies. <laughs> well, sorry. Sorry, sorry Charlie, <laughs> but, you know, maybe he'll get it. He'll... We'll sneak something back in there one day, maybe. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> well, let's go to the good reviews, or at least the ones that have tomatoes and not. Oh shit! I uh, we I thought we were done. I'm sorry. <laughs> we got two more. They're not very long. Uh, we're gonna go to Austin Trunick from Under the Radar. He gave it a six out of ten back in 2015, and what? he said it's Pacific Rim by way of Top Gun. So this is someone, I mean, he's looking at it obviously through a lens like into the past, but that's not a bad comparison. You know, that's a, it's a fun way to look at it. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. That's, that's pretty right. Yeah, that's, that's pretty goddamn good. Well, well Top Gun mixed with Rocky Four. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, throw some, sprinkle some Rocky Four and some Cold War stuff in there. And then, yeah, you get RoboJock, RoboJock. Uh, and then... <laughs> yeah, copyright, <laughs> copyright. I know, I don't want to get sued. Uh... Uh, and then finally, we're going to go to Noel Murray from The Dissolve. Gave it a 3 out of 5, so 6 out of 10. This Gordon's saving grace is that the stop-motion animation and model work on Robot Jocks looks really cool even now. And he said that in 2015. So there you go, Noel. He's able to acknowledge that, hey, despite the budgetary restrictions, this stuff still looks good. Yeah, I mean, and hey... Even with the budgetary restrictions, the story is still pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it may be a little clumsily executed and whatnot, but I think that everybody involved really put their best foot forward. And uh, look, when I had watched this, like, you know, a year before and, you know, back in the years and when I rented the, the tape and when I saw it in the theater, it was all goofy fun. But rewatching it like this time, I actually saw like all of the world building and the uh, the story plots and the things that they were trying to uh, work with. And uh, it's not just robots punching each other. It's it's actually really well thought out. Very yeah. impressed. Yeah. And I think what well, when I went to Prime to put the movie on. It was like, hey, if you like this, you might like all this other stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I might like all this other stuff. So I'm starting to add things to my watch list. And then it just brought me back to that point in the 80s where there was like this big push on sort of like fantasy adventure stuff. And so this kind of even though it's set in the future and it's sci fi and all that, it still sort of maintains some of the hallmarks of that 80s fantasy energy and i think maybe that's why i'm drawn to it because it is this thing that is maybe made for kids but uh palatable for adults you know and it's like whether or not you like willow or beastmaster conan or stuff like that they all scratch like a very like particular itch they do a good job with their production design they do a lot of like subtlety in the world building so i really just feel that this is maybe something that has gotten away from us. I don't know if it was like the onset of stuff like CGI, where it was like maybe really 
a little bit more convenient, easier, less expensive to start changing the kinds of ideas that we put on film. But I feel like aside from kind of the the superhero stuff that we've seen over the last like 20 years, the idea of like fantasy films has kind of dwindled a little bit. Well, yeah. Oh, man. I love every one of those movies you mentioned, except for Willow. I cannot fucking stand Willow. I saw it in the theater as a kid. And the whole time I was just sitting there wanting to tear my eyeballs out until the end when we got the double headed dragon and then it was gone. And it was like, ah, oh, fuck. Um, <laughs> but I heard yeah. you tell that story actually on that other episode. <laughs> Where did I tell that story? I don't remember. Uh, it was, it's the most, I think it was the, the end of year episode you did. Maybe the one right before that. Okay. Well, sorry, everybody. I don't like Willow. <laughs> That's heck, okay. Heck, heck, heck. Oh, I got sick of hearing that. Um, <laughs> but um, I, 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 I really. Oh shit! God damn it, Nick! Now I forgot what I was saying. <laughs> Fantasy movies, Beastmaster. Uh, yeah, those things. Those are the things that uh, were great at that point. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was saying that it's like it just feels like that sort of the oh, idea of wanting to produce that kind of stuff has gone away. Yeah, and it, yeah, and this was well before CGI ever became a thing. Mm-hmm. Now, th- uh, this is what I wanted to to ask. Like, this movie was supposed to come out in like eighty eight or eighty nine. Mm-hmm. Now, if it had come out in eighty eight or eighty nine. Do you think it would have done any better? Maybe because like you do you you are entering like technically you're in the 90s. And so it, it's hard to say for sure whether or not it would have done better. But I think it's a little bit more clear to look back and be like the 90s definitely had a certain type of movie that got made. And that movie doesn't necessarily like fit the general mold of the 90s. So in hindsight it's like okay maybe that had something to do with it and if it does come out like when concerns over something like the cold war are still heightened then yeah it may be a little bit more topically accessible you may be able to draw some more straight line comparisons to stuff like rocky that was popular and that was also on this show so a lot of people were like (laughs) hey that rocky is not a good movie but at the end of the day people love it so you know, maybe it would have had a little bit of help in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I think and especially because uh, the independents hadn't been totally uh, like locked out of the theaters at that point. You could you could still get your independent film out there and get it on enough screens to where you could build word of, word of mouth and you could make a profit and then when you go to v, you know video you make even more money but at that I, I think by the time it came out everybody was cut out uh you know out of theat- theatrical uh distribution yeah so it's just like you know it's it's in a tough spot where it's almost like a movie that by the time the 90s hit like you said it's a movie that's almost designed to be like straight to video at that point so it's caught between like a window closing at the end of a decade and then another small window opening at the beginning of another one. And that's why I was so confused by the time that like, this is 1990. 
So it's right in the sweet spot for me loving all this kind of stuff that I love. But like, I never saw it on TV. I never like saw it for rent at Blockbuster or anything. So it just kind of existed in like a, a vacuum where I just didn't even know about it until last year. It's fucking crazy because it was on VHS. It's just not not many places bought it so that you can rent it um, because it was, I guess, always intended to be a theatrical release. Um, but it was just way too late to follow through with that. Yeah, I'm glad I got to see it. Yeah. And there's probably like one of the specialty rental stores that, you know, my mom, she was like kind of in the industry adjacent business. So she knew some of these places and uh, they dealt with stuff like that, that was very limited that like special collections. And uh, it turns out that like my, someone that lives down the street from my sister was the heir to one of those shops and ended up like selling off the whole private collection. Oh. The one a, person. Uh, yeah. It was like Eddie Brantz oh, out here. Man. So I don't, I don't know where they ended up getting rid of it all too, but yeah, Eddie Brantz was like one of those names within the, the film sort of circles out here in LA where you could go and rent the thing that the other places didn't have. Man, I used to work for an independent video shop uh, here in Missouri, and it was cool because we didn't have to do anything, you know, except sit behind the counter <laughs> and we could make <laughs> our shelf like, here's what we suggest, and everybody could ignore them. Uh, <laughs> I will say, though, at one point, somebody came out and was like, hey, what's a, what's, what's a good movie? And... um. Heavenly Creatures had just come out. Okay. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I, because you know, I was a huge, um, I, 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 I was a huge fan of, God, I can't remember his name now, Nick. Guy did The Hobbit. Uh, Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson. I was a huge Peter Jackson film because I had rented Bad Taste and Dead Alive and all mm -hmm. that. And I'm like, wow, look at this guy. He's doing great stuff. You should watch this movie. She came back the next day to return it. She goes, yeah, uh, you do know that it was Mother's Day, right? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I did not know that. Um, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I felt so bad. I didn't know she was buying it or renting it to watch with their mom. Um <laughs> Uh, but eventually the guy sold the place and he didn't tell any of the workers, but uh, he was selling off his, his like everything, everything in the basement, everything for rent. He was selling off for like one, two, three dollars, whatever. If, if I had had the money, I would have bought all that shit, dude. Yeah, I mean, just a reminder that like having access to physical media is a good thing. Like even nowadays when everything is digital, there's still a reason to fight for physical collections. Oh, well, not only that, but you know, there's even problems with physical collections because I look, John Carpenter's the thing is my favorite film okay. It's my number one, uh, not just favorite horror film. It's my favorite film because I think it's the first film I remember watching. <laughs> Okay. I, it's and, not a bad choice at all. I love that movie. Yes. So uh, if you if you had the DVD back in the day, there's a commentary with John Carpenter 
and um, Kurt Russell. Um, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell together is fucking hilarious because they're laughing. You hear John Carpenter lighting his cigarettes and da da da. They're making fun of uh, Wilford Brimley and whatnot. And it's just absolutely amazing. Now they have a new they have a new Blu-ray out of John Carpenter's thing, and they have edited mm-hmm. the commentary. They have cut out the sound of John Carpenter lighting a cigarette, and they've also rearranged what they're talking about. I guess to more more fit what's happening on the screen. Uh, and it's okay. like, are you fucking kidding me? It's the greatest commentary ever. It's the it's so funny. Because you ever listen to John John Carpenter with anybody else, it's pretty fucking boring. Listen to his in the mouth of madness mm. uh with the cinematographer. John just goes, Oh, what uh what what <laughs> lens, what lens did you use here? How'd you shoot this shot? It's like he has nothing to say. Did you put him with Kurt Russell and those motherfuckers just laugh their asses off? It's great. Oh, that's awesome. I'm gonna have to see if I can find that, but obviously you have not to buy on yourself the Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, get the DVD version, man. Yeah, and like as we were as Donnie and I were doing our Event Horizon episode, it was like that movie was initially 130 minutes that they cut down to like 90 something yeah. minutes. So they cut out like 40 minutes and then a, a lot of that physical footage is lost, degraded, yep. improperly stored. Uh, and so it was like the rumors were that there might be a VHS that has the original 130 minute version, but oh, it's no. probably in really bad shape. So just like the idea that that kind of stuff isn't, preserved and something like a director's cut can never like maybe even be actualized because paramount i think who was the studio was like no we need you to cut this out so that people will actually watch it and so we don't get an nc-17 banner on this so you know it's it's an interesting time in film in that there is more of a push i think from consumers and collectors to want to have the physical stuff but uh, a lot of the people that are sort of our age or like in our demographic that want that are also looking backwards at movies that are now getting close to 30 years old that don't have maybe some of those automatic protections in place. Yeah, I I mean, there's that's that holds true for a lot of films, like even uh, a lot of the Friday 13th films had a bunch of gore effects and stuff especially part seven uh part seven was butchered um and that stuff is lost you may find a vhs like uh producer cut i guess you would call yeah. it where it just looks like garbage but you can actually see what it was supposed to be but there's no way to put lipstick on that pig it ain't gonna look any better um and with event horizon it's just gone completely there's there's a few edited scenes that you can see in like bonus features and whatnot, mm-hmm. but nothing like what we're actually missing. And uh, they have they have come out. Uh, the the creators have come out and said, "Yeah, it's never going to happen. We're never going to get a director's cut of Event Horizon because it's lost." Um, and there's a. Uh, there's one of my one of my favorite movies called Dust Devil, directed by Richard Stanley. 
Hmm. Oh, Stanley Knight. Uh, yeah, he did hardware. Uh, he um, also did what was that? Uh, uh, Color Out of Space with mm-hmm. Nicolas Cage. But he did a movie called Dust Devil and the Weinsteins or Weinsteins or oh, however you pronounce mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, well, they cut the fuck out of it and they tried to turn it from a supernatural film into a slasher film and uh, just obliterated all of this fucking um like uh amazing shit uh finally about 10 years later i guess richard stanley had tracked down as much footage as he could find throughout the world from different people like and found the footage and cleaned it up as best as he could and put it back together it's still not the full film the way he made it because he can't find everything So studios do not care. They do not care about artistic vision and they are not going to preserve any of this. It's up to us. Pirate shit. Save it. Share (laughs) it. Arg. Arg matey. Uh, (laughs) Well, I think that's a good place to give the, give you the floor first and see, is there anything that was, in your notes about this movie in particular that we didn't actually get to cover? Um, well, hey, uh, let me take a look. We've, uh, oh, I have, oh, this was pretty cool. Um, in its second week of release, Robot Jocks, not Robot, Robo Jocks, because that would infringe on copyright, <laughs> um, made it to number 13. Oh, sweet. That's not okay. bad. That's not, not bad the, at all. The top 10. I mean, it only made about a one one million two thousand dollars or something like that. One million three thousand dollars or something, but that's pretty impressive. Like enough people were able to go, it's like something I'd like, and they went and went and saw it, including somebody who wanted to break up with their girlfriend. That's hey, all. They bought tickets. That counts. <laughs> uh, I guess the only. The only question or the sort of like nitpicky thing for me in this movie comes at the end. It's not like super important to the overall structure of the film, but there's this thing about like espionage and secret weapons. And oh, yeah. So Matsumoto like goes through this whole thing. He gets basically killed for it. And then you get you get a different pilot in the machine. And so Athena's in there and not Achilles. And she learns of what this weapon is, and it's like a giant blinding flare, basically. Oh, and yeah. then she uses it and then just stands there and nothing happens. Yes. And, and Alexander gets up and jumps on her. I'm like, this is such a waste of Matsumoto died to protect this secret and you don't even take <laughs> advantage. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. That's just like, oh, wow, it worked. Let's see what happens next. Well, he's is, gonna, is he dead? Right? I mean, um, and, and plus, I also like that whenever they have like a special feature for the robot, they put like a little fucking like origami, like, mm-hmm. like representation of what it does next to the button. <laughs> like, it's like what it looks like a bright star. Uh, the other one, I don't know. At one point, oh, I think he says, uh, hold on, I have this written down because I thought it was fucking hilarious. 
Um, <laughs> fire with the pickle on the right palm. <laughs> right? I was like, man, this controller is getting very crowded very quick. And like, what? what is the pickle exactly on the right palm? <laughs> Oh, it's so it's so fucking great. Um uh oh shit. Now I just lost everything because you got me talking about pickles. I I don't yeah, have we're a fan, we're fans of big vinegar here. I well yeah <laughs> he controls everything. Oh, you know what was funny? Um uh, once the two robots uh crash land back on the planet and um uh, Achilles get out gets out of his robot, whatnot. Uh, he's hanging on to the foot. Alexander is looking for him. He's like, <laughs> and then uh, he drops down. He starts running through the desert. Do you know what he does? <laughs> he does dive, right? He does serpentine. Oh, that's right. He zigzags. I was like, hey, serpentine. it's smart though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, he hit, it's hit him with a little right, a little left, and then takes off off camera. Also, I I just want to reiterate, chainsaw penis. Yes, chainsaw the, penis. The robot whips out its chainsaw penis and shoves it right into the other robot's face or into the cockpit, I should say. <laughs> uh, so you the got cock that to the look cock? <laughs> Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that was that was a lot of fun, man. So so thank you, uh, for for recommending that first of all and then uh for giving me an excuse to watch it by coming on to the show so since you're here why don't you tell the people that are listening what it's been like uh doing the shit show because it's been what like six months now i i maybe maybe almost a year i don't know it seems like i've been doing it forever it seems like it's all of my existence <laughs> <laughs> Uh, shithead Shinobi. I mean, Obi Ben Shinobi. I mean, Connie. Uh, we've <laughs> we, we've we've been doing a um a podcast called Cinema Shit Show, and we cover crazy shit like this. Um, and we're not edited, really. Uh, we don't we don't operate like a lot of normal podcasts. We're pretty crazy. Um, and, um, I don't know. It's been a joy. I love having, we've had a lot of people on to talk with us, including you. Yeah. Uh, including me. Yeah. We talked about another empire picture, which was ghoulies too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love having people on and talking to them and <laughs> laughing with everybody and laughing with Ben. Uh, it's great. I, I, anybody wants to join in, we have an email. It's, Ben did something. He did it. Yeah, instead of me, Ben did something. We have an email and it's cinema shit show at gmail.com. Uh you can let us know if you have an idea for a movie you uh like to watch or if you'd like to join us. But there are rules. The first time you come on, you gotta watch what we choose for you. Uh the second time you come on. You can choose whatever you want. We just uh, ask that it's uh, free or at least easily accessible. We like Tubi. Uh, we like Canopy. We like Hoopla. Um, whatever you got, let us know. And um, yeah, that 
that's pretty much it, I guess. Yeah, it's actually, you know, when I didn't have a commute, it was difficult for me to like carve out time to listen to podcasts. But with your show, it gave me an opportunity to like actually get in at like the very first episode as you were making it and listen. And like, you know, I got married and went on my honeymoon. So I fell like a few episodes behind. But it's been really nice to see like where you guys started, how far you've come since then, like seeing you both get well, listening to you both get more comfortable sort of like in your skin as host, bringing in guests that have written books and made movies and produced movies and sort of like pushing uh, not the envelope, but pushing the boundaries a little bit of like what the show started as. And uh, it's legitimately one of my favorite shows to listen to and apple's never gonna let me actually post that review because i've tried like four <laughs> times and they keep blocking it i even screenshotted it to you and sent it to you like this is proof look i did it and it just will not show up so for the people that are listening here i really do love cinema shit show and i do listen to it <laughs> well I, it might be that you that you put shit snake in the uh, oh, subject line man, apples uh, all fidgety. yeah yeah <laughs> they're they're very sensor sensory um okay oh man that is so good to hear i love that dude um we don't hear from a lot of uh listeners um and so it's really cool to hear and yeah if you have something that you've done, even if it's not maybe movie related, I have authors uh, lined up to come on the show and talk about whatever book they've written and whatnot. And we'll we'll spend time talking about that at the beginning, and then we'll hit the movie and you run through it with us. It doesn't, you know, we're we're happy to spread creativity. That's really why we're here, man. Everybody, come have fun, laugh. We'll 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 talk about what you're doing. We'll do what we're doing, and you're more than welcome to join us. Well, there you have it. Uh, I'm gonna make you guys watch a movie of my choice for a change at some point here in the not too distant future. Uh, I might have to enlist your services to help me find it though, because it is one of those weird blockbuster rentals that I just couldn't get <laughs> enough of. But like. DVD is like in limited production, so I wouldn't even know where to find it if I wanted to. Um, but yeah, I think one of my favorite things about listening to this shit show is like, even though you guys basically talk about the entire plot of the movie, I don't feel like listening to it has ever ruined one of the movies for me, if that makes sense. Because I'm just like sitting there listening to you guys have fun. So it allows me to have fun in that way. And uh, I'm proud of you guys. So keep it going. And I look forward to your 2024 slate. <laughs> well, hey, man. Um, yeah, I mean, it is your choice because you follow. We followed the rules with you. You were subjected to what we chose. <laughs> now you get to choose the next one when you come back. I am so excited for you to come back, man. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll start. I'll start looking and seeing if I can find this thing. And oh, if I, if I can't, I'll just enlist you. Just ask me. Just ask me right now. What are we looking for? All right. We're going to it's it's either going to be called Inframan. Oh, super, shit. Super Inframan. Or I know Chinese what you're talking Superman. about. <laughs> you don't even got to fucking tell me. I love fucking Inframan. And here's the deal. <laughs> 
I love the uh, American dub of Inferman. Oh, hell yeah, baby. <laughs> oh, my God. Roger Ebert loved this version Did of he? Wow. Okay. Yes. Awesome. He thought it was fucking hilarious and just so much fun. It All is. right. Okay. Look, I've had trouble <laughs> finding the English version, the English dub of Inferman okay. before, but I haven't really looked that hard. Uh, so I will I will reinvigorate myself to find it because I would love to talk about it for me <laughs> with you. Thunderbolt fists. Yeah, I can um, have such things. That freaking movie is crazy. And it's from the 60s, too. So it's like it's 70s. What, is it really? I, think, I thought it was 68. It's I don't think it's 60s. No, okay. I, I, I could so. be wrong. But when we were doing Superhero Month for Film Club, like that was in the conversation for me. And I was just like, I don't think I'd be able to like get any like I don't know where it is. So I don't think it's streaming anywhere. And like no one's gonna be able to watch this. So I went a different direction. But it was up there for like, I kind of want to make people watch this kind of movie. Fuck yeah. 1975. By the uh, okay. Way. All right. So right in the sweet spot of the 70s there. <laughs> a year after I was born, I'm old. <laughs> oh man well thank you so much for being here this was a lot of fun man it always is hey dude absolutely i've i've missed talking to you i can't wait to have you back and um uh, i'm gonna come back on uh the bad movies we love again I, I guess i'll have to find something we haven't talked about yet that we both love oh, i'm so, sorry so by the funny, way but it ain't gonna be willow the fuck no dude, by the monster. way Beastmaster. Uh, by the way, I'm really sorry that I covered uh, Terror of Mechagodzilla without you, buddy. I, oh, I, okay, I didn't man. know. <laughs> I was like, I've still yet to listen to that episode because it's just I'm going to cry and be like, it should have been me. <laughs> <laughs> but you got like a you got like a real author in there to do it. So I understand. He's he's a bigger Godzilla freak than even me, man. He he corrected me quite a few times. Oh, wow. Okay, well, now I gotta listen to the episode. <laughs> it's alright. I'm playing catch-up. I'll get there eventually. I'm a couple behind, but I'll get there. Well, I love you, shit snake. I love you, too, T-Bob. Well, who's that? My oh, name's Connie. Connie. Oh, that's right. Tubin. Tubin <laughs> Scoobin. <laughs> Boobin! <laughs> alright, brother. Take care. Alright, love you, buddy. Bye. Have a good night. My thanks and appreciation to Nix for coming by the show and helping me with both an unofficially themed month and an unofficial trilogy that neither of us planned on. If you like what you heard, make sure you check out his show, Cinema Shit Show, and you can find that everywhere that you get your podcasts. And of course, I'm going to put all of that information up in the show notes for you to make it real easy. And of course, thank you to everyone who took the time to listen to this episode. I know you have a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts, and I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you do, please consider leaving a rating and telling a friend about it. And the new support page is live at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash badmovieswelove. I'd love to hear from you, so if you have a bad movie you love, and or maybe would like to be a guest on the show, you can contact me now at badmovieswelove at thescheiss.com or badmovieswelove on Twitter and Instagram, and that's love with an L-U-V. And as always, take care, be well, stay safe, and have fun however you get your movies.